Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Let's join our hosts, Phil Dark and Rick Morton. All right, welcome again to the Think Orphan podcast. This is Rick Morton, along with my co-host and MVP of his junior high flag football team, Phil Dark. Nice. So, folks out there, you're wondering where that came from. We were just talking about it off air, and, you know, my mom had found my junior high uh, yearbook. And I was reminded of that apparently not so important fact um, that I was the MVP of my flag football team in junior high. And I, you know, it's not something I've carried with me. It's not something I put on my resume ever. And maybe I should have, I might've, I might've gotten some jobs that I didn't otherwise get because I didn't add that little fact, but, um, I did not get recruited for college with that. Alabama never called me, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have a strong flag football program at the university of Alabama. You know, so, Anyway, so yeah, so that that really has absolutely nothing to do with this podcast. But um, Rick just But Phil, I want the, I want our listeners to get to know that's you, true, man. To know the full Like I want them to be able to say like Phil, you're my best friend yeah, and I know about that's you. That's true. And you know, if anyone, you know, if we have a like the Orphan Care flag football team, that's good information to know. Right? Or if you're going up against us, you know, in flag football, that's a scout. That's a, so it may come into play. Who knows? Who knows? So, but it does. One thing I know is it doesn't have anything to do with our interview today um, that I can think of. And maybe we can find a connection, but I, I'm thinking it probably won't. Um, yeah, not likely. Yeah, probably not likely. Today, folks, we have another good interview for you. It's just, it's, it's amazing to see how many great people we have in the context of this work that we're doing. You know, people that are doing work that um, is changing lives, doing work that is encouraging others to do the same. And I know that Corby Dukes with Kids Alive International, he's the Guatemala field director. I was able to meet um, Corby at the CAFO Summit uh, last year and we did a, a breakout session together. He, he served on a panel. We talk about it a little bit in this interview, but, uh, I just, I really wanted him to be able to share with you out there, uh, what he was able to share in this breakout session and, and more, uh, cause he only had, I think six minutes during that conversation. And so he had much more than that here. So I'm very thankful for that. And, uh, I know you guys will be as well. So, uh, Rick, do you have anything more before we send him over to the Corby Dukes interview. And no, let's uh, without further ado, let's uh, let's hear from Corby Dukes. Well, Corby, it's so good to have you on the Think Orphan podcast today. Yeah, I'm excited to excited to join you, Phil. It's a privilege. Well, Corby, you and I had the chance to uh, do a little breakout session at CAFO a couple weeks ago in Dallas. And, uh, you know, I learned a little bit about what you're, uh, what you're working, uh, on in Guatemala and the, the things that you're doing there with, with kids alive. And, you know, it's exciting stuff. And I just wanted you to be able to share that with our audience. But before we get into the work that kids alive's doing in Guatemala, I just want to hear a little bit about your story and how you got to be where you are today. And can you just share that with our audience? Uh, yeah. I'll give the I'll give the short version. I um, had a pretty long career in uh, systems engineering. I was systems director for electronics manufacturer, a chip, chip manufacturer for a while, 
and uh, felt um, God call us into ministry. And uh, actually, it was here on a short-term trip uh, with my church uh, to Oasis, where where I am right now, where God um, called me and talked to the pastors, went on church with our, went on staff with our church uh, for a few years, and then um, here about 10 years ago, uh, and uh, with with another short-term team, this time as missions pastor at my church. And uh, God uh, really clearly called me to, to when the when the current director uh, told me she was leaving. God uh, told me you're next. And uh, really, just a few short months after that, uh, my wife and two daughters and I were uh, down here in language school, and uh, we're out of the U.S. and and have um, yeah came down here and have been director of Clyde uh, Guatemala. Uh, working on my 10th year, um, and uh, wife's still here. Daughters have gone back, went back to um, university, and uh, are now located in um, St. Paul. Mm. So uh, it's been a, been a crazy journey for us over the last 10 years. Yeah, absolutely. I bet. Yeah, and I. Uh, that's one of the things I always love hearing, just the different stories and just how different people got to where they are and... and um, you know, particularly just hearing, usually it wasn't the uh, expectation, right? It wasn't what you were planning on, and, and that, that no. seems to be kind of the, the commonality to most of this, is it wasn't, very few people right. say, yeah, I, I uh, went to school to with the hopes that I'd be going uh, overseas or going into for or nonprofit or going into orphan care. That's usually not the story. That, that, no. Every so often you hear that, but for the most part, it's God just mm-hmm. kind of saying, you know, I got this for you and I'm going to do it. You're going to be doing something and I'll give you all the way, you know, the, the wisdom and discernment to know how to do it. So it sounds like that's your story as well. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, when, um, God called us, uh, my wife and I spent the first, uh, two months of the process, um, praying and absolutely convinced I had made a mistake. <laughs> Or that this was a, uh, an Abraham Isaac in the bush type of thing, and and he was going to find somebody who spoke Spanish and who knew something about children's ministries um, to take this position. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he didn't. So we learned Spanish and learned to trust our staff down here as far as how to how to pull together a, a pretty special ministry. Yeah, so tell me about what, what you guys are doing there and, and really just how, um, you know, just start with what you guys are doing today and then we'll kind of get how it's it's changed over the 10 years you've been there. Right, so uh, now we will call ourselves a multimodal um, ministry uh, and uh, OASIS uh, focus exclusively on um, girls who are victims of, of uh, sexual crimes and uh, we work with the Guatemalan court system, the Guatemalan prosecutors, uh, Guatemalan, um, what would be called Child Protective Services in the United States. And uh, so girls come to us by court order uh, for their protection. And uh, the staff here has really done an amazing job of setting up a very therapeutic uh, residential program uh, where the first step is 
uh, helping the girl recover from uh, pretty significant um, traumas, emotional traumas. They often come with uh, physical um, diseases because of the abuse. Uh, we have one program that's focused on uh, child moms. Uh, so they'll come either with a newborn or uh, pregnant as a result of uh, sexual abuse. And uh, from there, we start working with Guatemalan prosecutors. We start working with the judges. And the goal um, has uh, evolved over time to they don't stay they they don't stay here any longer than they need to. And so we work towards family reconciliation and reunification. Uh, we just launched a uh, foster care program, and uh, so we're really focused on moving from residential therapy care into um, into family care. Uh, and uh, the team here does a does a really super job, and uh, it's really kind of amazing to watch these um, the staff, um, social workers, and psychologists um, all all Guatemalan except for one uh, fantastic lady from actually um, Great Britain who's a social worker working with us and uh, how they um, work with families, work with the kids, work with the prosecutors uh, to get uh, for the girls to get justice. And uh, then we try very hard to move them back into family care. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, now you haven't all that. It all hasn't always been looked like what you guys are doing right now. And, and so, you know, what, Kind of what's take take us through the the journey of the last ten years or so, and kind of how mm-hmm. it's changed, what what instigated and incited the change, and and just what what you're thinking on it has been over the years. Yeah, uh, well, we started here uh, with uh, with the ministry um, in two thousand um, early two thousand nine uh, when when I got here. Uh, the ministry was a uh, kind of a general purpose um, girls' children home. But uh, one of the things that I found was a significant portion of the girls had been um, victims of sexual abuse. And uh, at the time, we had um, maybe 30-some girls here. Uh, we had a part-time social worker and a part-time psychologist. And I talked to the psychologist uh, um who is now director of the residential program, um, Carla Galvan. And she said, she is very honest. She says, you know, I, I just do ER work here. We're not doing therapy. We just, we just patch up crises. And, uh, so we really started talking. I started, um, listening to them, started doing research on uh, the effects of trauma on, um, children, because frankly, these, these kids just didn't act like other kids. And it wasn't because they're Guatemalan, it was because they'd suffered really profoundly. And um, you know, we started working to, to assemble a, a, a different focus of the ministry. And so that, that took us into doing more um, what I'd call being purposeful in um, therapy. And we became very purposeful in our discipleship model. Uh, we felt like we were kind of just wandering around in the in the forest of the Bible, and we got really very focused on what we wanted to how we wanted to communicate um, the gospel to the girls, and um, 
the the change to focus on um, moving kids to family is a girl uh, who I really connected with on a personal level uh, was sent home and uh, by judge's order. And um, I was just like really back by that. And um, we started to um, another uh, what another thing that happened is uh, we cha- uh, a new social worker came to work for us and and she was like I'll come to work here but I'm not going to sit in my office I want to do field work I want to I want to work with the families and uh, so uh, kind of basically said well go get them tired but you got to go find this one girl <laughs> and so um, she found her took about six months to find uh, this girl Yarani was her name and. Uh, Took another couple of months to get the trust of the mom, and um, seeing how our social worker worked with that mom and worked with that child just revolutionized my view of what we should be doing. Mm. And I, I would say that was that was our that's my favorite mom who was ever in one of our programs, and to see the success of how we could not just intervene in a child's life but intervene uh, in the mom and disciple her and see how her life could change, which then changed um, our girl's brother's life. And, um, yeah, that just really launched a ministry. Mm-hmm. And, and one, of the, one of the crucial points in that was, you know, that, that social worker sticking her finger in my face when I was hesitant about working with the moms and the families of these girls. And um, she said, you know what? God loves them, too. Mm-hmm. And um, I've been to seminary, and I couldn't really argue that point. <laughs> <laughs> and and so what ha- what became as kind of a, a, a reactive ministry? Okay, well, if a judge is going to send a girl home, we're going to figure out what to do. Has evolved to where that is the goal. Yeah, the goal is to restore this child back to her family. And so. Even in cases where it's sexual abuse, where the, the majority are uh, domestic sexual abuse, uh, we can get over half our girls home uh, within a year. Uh, well, a little bit more than a year, sorry. And we've also put out a deal with the um, court system here where uh, we get court-ordered um, supervision of the girl in her home uh, for that first year. So for, for the first year she's home, uh, the family has to collaborate with us. And, and even after that, then it becomes kind of a voluntary, we'll, we'll write a contract with the family of services we'll provide and what they need to do. And uh, so uh, a lot of families continue on with us, particularly if there's a need. So we'll make sure the girl has what it takes to go to school. Um, we're there to monitor um, the situation, we're there to do a lot of family discipleship and a lot of discipleship with the mom, helping her get get a job, helping her maybe open a micro business, and really kind of being a support network for for families that really never had one before. Yeah, and have seen just just cool stuff happen yeah, of great. whole families being reborn into a a, a life of of dignity from where they were. Yeah. yeah. 
And that's something we talk about so much is the, the need for that family strengthening, the need for family preservation. And, mm-hmm. and not just family preservation. So a lot of people talk about family preservation, but family strengthening. I mean, that's, that's where I think to, to make those distinctions too, right? That we want to make sure right. that we're, we're actually pouring into them and discipling them and helping them to be stronger. And we need that at every level. And, we need that with my family, you know? So I think that that's something mm-hmm. that's critical to understand. And with us, it's it's uh, family restoration. Yeah, because the, the family's been blown to pieces right. when the girl comes to us, and then we first step is to to further kind of uh, well, we're going to go after the um, the sexual aggressor. Yeah, not maybe go after strong word. Well, we kind of do. <laughs> but we'll work with uh, we'll work with the um, Guatemalan prosecutors uh, for the girl to have justice mm-hmm. because we, we we just really see it is a big deal for our girls to re- to to fit they like they receive justice mm-hmm. and their girls are always better emotionally and spiritually on the other side of the criminal prosecution. And they're prosecuting fathers, stepfathers, brothers, uncles, local pastors. I mean, so a lot of it is family, and they're going in and making declarations against family members. Mm-hmm. And and then we go in, and, and then we'll start working to put that family back together. And all we'll find is the same stuff that happened to the other. And probably the same stuff that happened to the grandmother. So now we're doing trauma therapy for the mom and helping her heal from wounds so that now she can become more of the person uh, Jesus designed her to be and calls her to be out of the valley of trauma and sexual oppression and um, you know, we, we talk about trauma on staff here as being a a physical disease and a spiritual disease. And we really believe that um, in the healing of trauma that the the mom and the girl uh, can really start loving God with all their heart and all their mind and all their soul. And without that work of helping them walk a path of recovery, it's I mean, there's there's always a gap, yeah. and uh, so, so that's what you know. So, so that's our process. It's not preservation, but restoration. Right. Yeah. And um, it's really kind of amazing to see the healing power of the gospel um, in that house and yeah. with my mom. That's and true. it's generally they'll say it's the first time anybody ever cared about me. So what challenges have you encountered um, in the transition kind of along, as you were talking about, to, to strengthen families, to restore families, and to transition from kind of the overall general care to now the focus you guys have now? And, you know, both from a organizational, like within internally, but also sharing changes with donors and, you know, bringing them along the transition with you. Yeah, I... You know, organizationally, to be honest, uh, with national staff, there wasn't much resistance. I think the national staff 
saw or had always seen uh, the need for um, family restoration and were invited to go about it. And if the people are excited to come here to work uh, so that they can be a part of what God's doing in, in family restoration. Uh, the pushback, if any, was from um, non-national that were here. And, um, you know, some donors, but really, I think I was surprised at how little pushback we got as, as, as we've evolved over time. And so maybe that helped because it was a, it was a bit of an evolution, mm-hmm. uh, as we, as we, as we walked this path and, and, and people could, could buy into it. Uh, but our budget, uh, has tripled in the number of kids we've, uh, in care at any one time is more than tripled, uh, with kids residential and kids in our families together program. And, um, you know, we're just, we just started the process of trying to count how many, um, children we've impacted over the last several years of a child comes in, there's a restoration process, redemption of her life, and a restoration and redemption of her family, and then she goes back to family. And that's that's just a lot of kingdom building that goes on, not just in the kid that's here, but in in her family. And then, you know, my, I, our, our big problem is we're, we're worrying to move more kids out of here into foster family so that we have the residential vacancies uh, for kids that are out there who need the therapy and need the restoration and, and need the justice um, ministry that we, that we provide. Yeah. Have you had yeah. any uh, instances where the families just – it just didn't work? Uh, I'd, I'd say after um, after a reunification, about twenty five percent I would call failures. Mm. Okay. And I would say the majority of those, uh, I I would have to go back and look. It would be close to a hundred percent of those failures was when a judge sent the child home and a recommendation. Mm. Um, so it happens, but you're going to have failures in residential program too. Sure. And so I think, um, the, the, the real benefit is, is the, having that restoration and seeing the, seeing the kid go back in the family. And, um, you know, so only about half of our girls go back to biological family based on the situation that they're in. So that's why we're kind of hard to crank up our, our foster care program with the government that are operate under our umbrella so that the other 50% of girls can go back to family. And, you know, I was kind of looking at that. I've always kind of looked at things and, and, and you wonder, okay, well, if kid's been here for a bunch of years, it's better for her to just kind of age out here. Or should we really try to pleasure her? And we talked to a couple of sisters 
who looked like a good candidate for a foster family, for a family that had provide as a foster family. And um, these kids have been here for eight years, almost as long as I've been here. And if you were to hold up a poster of the model kids for a successful residential program, these girls would be it. Their behavior is excellent. They're excellent students. Um, they're in. They're leaders in our worship team and in discipleship. And I mean, they're just awesome kids. Mm-hmm. And uh, our social worker brought it up to them and said, "Look, there's this possibility. Are you guys interested in meeting this family and, and maybe going on a path of being a foster family?" And all three of those girls broke down crying, mm-hmm. and they said. We had been praying for eight years, the whole time we've been here, that we could have a family. And, you know, that just took away any shred or any 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 mist of doubt of how important family is to a kid. Yeah. Even kids that look perfectly adjusted and by all accounts, would be thriving in residential. Their heart yearns uh, for families. And so we're trying very hard to, to, to pull, to, to get this foster family cranked up. And uh, we should be having those 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 sisters and, and a few more going into our first foster families uh, here in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, that's, that's something to... You know, that I, I always talk to people about, you know, they say, well, I saw so many kids in orphanages who are now successful in life. And, and I think most of those kids, I mean, some some may say, you know, I never really have a hole for family. But I've talked to so many kids who are now not kids anymore. They're in their 30s. Mm-hmm. But they just talk about mm-hmm. how they still want someone to bring them in as their family. I mean, they, they, you never, you know, they I, some of them are married and they're just like still want a family that can call me, I can call them a mom and dad and, you know, and and it's just, it's amazing. I mean, you know, you talk to kids about how they hate their birthday if they're, you know, when they're in their thirties and they still, because they just have memories, Mm -hmm. no one ever celebrated it and uh, still don't typically. So those things that, that I talked to, uh, yeah, I talked to an adult, very successful adult here at the modeling. And he talked about how he, it was like he got hit by a train as he was filling out a form for medical insurance because it asked for family history. And he said, I I don't have one. Mm. You know, and so that whole, yeah, I mean, it's just a crucial thing for people to have their family and roots to family. And, um, yeah, you know, one of the things that it was a few donors that would push back as we started to roll out and move kids into family, the 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 question always in the argument is, who in this room wants their own kids to end up in a residential program? Mm-hmm. Yeah, nobody. Right. <laughs> nobody. Absolutely. Everybody would say, I, I want them to go to to extended family. If not to be adopted, but at least to be in a foster family, I wouldn't want them to be in an institution. Right. Absolutely. And, and no matter how good, yeah, no matter how good your institution is, I call it. We talk about it here. We call it the institution ceiling, yep. where kids just plateau. A kid is going to plateau in institutional care. So. 
Mm. Yeah. So, so we're, you, we're dedicated to moving them out. Yes. Yeah. So how can Go you ahead. encourage our audience um, and help them to pursue excellence in their care of orphan and vulnerable children? I would say to always be looking at one of the things we do is we're always looking at what is best for a specific child. And, and because you can't do for all doesn't mean you shouldn't do for one. Mm-hmm. Right. So even if we could only put five of 40 kids into foster care, that's still better for those five. And, and so often you fall into a trap of, well, I can't do this for all of them. So it's not fair to do it for one of them. Right. And, and I just don't think that's, I don't, I, I, I don't think that that's just, and, and, you know, one of the things that people, oh, well, what about the kids who can't go? All the kids here understand. They're more, in a lot of ways, more mature about it than, than the adults. And they say, well, I'm glad that Maria got to go home. I wish I could go home, but I'm glad that she got to go home. Mm-hmm. And so really focusing on what is the best path of permanency for a child and, and, and having so trying to put structures in place that would facilitate facilitate that. And in the first goal when a kid comes into residential, the first goal should be how do I get them out of here? What what is the best way to get this child out of here? And no matter how good it is, and we try to make our residential program excellent, 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 the goal is to move them out of here because that's going to be the best for them. And, um, you know, that's, that's one of the things. And, and by looking at what is the best for a specific child has moved us in faith to open up programs and, and, and being better, and that's benefited all of our kids. Absolutely. Well, Corby, thank, thanks, for, uh, thanks for sharing all that that's going on in, in Guatemala. This brings us to the last couple questions that, that we ask all our guests. And, uh the first is, what have you read, listened to, or watched uh, recently that has impacted your thinking on how we can love orphan and vulnerable children with excellence? It doesn't necessarily have to be recently. There can be really anything that you've read that really has touched you and impacted you in this area. I, the, the biggest things that have driven us have been solid neuroscience research mm. on development. And, you know, what, what, we'll, what we tell people is that we are 100% faith-based here and we're 100% science-based here. Um, so reading things like the, the child who was raised as a dog, um, the body keeps the score, anatomy of the soul um, helps focus us on what it is we're doing and um, helps focus us on, on just maintaining the level of excellence. And, and everything we do is, is to set up an environment for this child to um, heal um, neuro- neurologically and also spiritually from, from attacks of the devil, which I think, I think sexual abuse and is, a, is a demonic attack, assault on a child's soul. That shows up neurologically and shows up spiritually. So, so those those books and 
have been just real, um, particularly um, Thompson's book on anatomy of the soul of tying the spiritual and the neurological together. Um, this has been a big help to keep us aligned to where we need to be going. Absolutely. That's no, a fantastic book. We just, I was recently able to interview Kurt and he's just mm-hmm. brilliant, brilliant guy. I was blown away by that interview. Um, yeah, great, great stuff. Yeah. So the last question, what one person has most impacted your thinking on how we can love orphan and at-risk children with excellence? Um, Rosalva Alvarado, who is uh, our now director of social work and psychology. Hmm. She is just a fierce proponent of justice for a child. And that's just not putting a bad guy in jail, but it's justice for that child is a restoration of her rights to have a family. And, um, I mean, she's just, she's just a fierce proponent of fighting for each child to have a just outcome of that. They are safe and that they are back in, they, they have a family yeah, and, and watching her work and watching her devotion and watching her um, passion and of how that she can love a child and, and love that family where that child came from. It's just been a great model to me of that, of how Christ would, would work um, with children. Mm. Well, Corby, thank you so much for your uh, for your time, for sharing your wisdom, for sharing your experience, for sharing what God's been teaching you over the last uh, 10 years working down in Guatemala with Kids Alive, and just uh, look forward to uh, continuing our conversation really soon. Okay. Hey, I appreciate it, and thanks. Thanks. Uh, it was fun. Well, thanks again, Corby, for uh, just sharing all that God's doing down in Guatemala and uh, all that... Uh, you know, just your thoughts that are that are helping us to think better about all this work that we're doing to bring children into families um, and to do it in ways that are wise and do it in ways that uh, really seek uh, God's will in the midst of some really difficult circumstances. And so, uh, Rick, what what'd you think of uh, the conversation I was able to have with Corby? And I love the uh, the fact that you know Corby has such a heart for uh, deinstitutionalization. Um, you know, we know, man, that uh, those of us that are in uh, in this work, that um, institutions are are very rarely a good solution for kids. And so the the idea of of always having a posture to move toward towards something from the institution and to do that expediently, I think, is a you know, is a is a great word and a great reminder for us. I think it's always counterbalanced by the idea that that we we live in the reality that we we inhabit a world that's full of institutions that have been made for children and that that is work that is difficult and uh and and it it doesn't happen and it can't happen as as fast as we want it to happen many times um but that that is a that's a worthy goal that we need to to keep in front of us as a target um 
all the time because you know as as our our friend Johnny Carr, uh, you know I've heard him say many times that uh, you know that men built institutions uh, for children, but that but that God made children for families, and and so um, you know we we want to we definitely want to honor that, and I appreciate what he had to say. About yeah, absolutely. That. You know, and it's something that y- you hit it on the head that most people doing this work that are really thinking about it, that are really diving and investing their lives into this for, you know, kingdom purposes. Uh, and I say that because there are the exceptions to the rule of people out there doing this for money or doing this for some other thing in some of these, you know, developing world countries that are taking advantage of people. Um, that's not the majority. That's not the rule in this. Most people really want to get kids into families, but there's some realities that, that we have. And as, as Corby said, there's some, there's some, instances that if we rush it, if we do it in ways that don't have the proper training, if we do it in ways that don't have vetting or people aren't really going in with eyes wide open, there's a 25% disruption rate or or rate of of children going back into the system in some way from a, whether it's a biological or an adoptive or foster family, you know, that, that number is very similar in the U S in adoptions. There's about a 25% disruption rate that we don't talk a lot about because we don't want to discourage people. But the way I'd see it is, you know, it really causes us to go in with eyes wide open so we have more success in it because we don't want anybody to have that experience that causes it to be a negative right so then they go tell people oh you don't really want to do it because it's a nightmare right. well it, it, there could be a lot of reasons for that right and so when you're able to go in with eyes wide open when you're able to go in with understanding the issues that go into understanding you know they who you are, who these children are, to know, understand trauma-informed care, and understand all these other things that you need to know going into it, um, it helps that rate be much lower. And and the hope is that we can do that better and better rather than forcing it just because, in theory, it is the right thing to do. Yeah. You know, and, and Phil, I, I think we, you know, we can take a page out of maybe out of the adoption world, you know, we, you, you quoted, you know, you said there's, you know, it's kind of commonly thought that there's a, there's a 25% dissolution rate in, uh, you know, in international adoptions with, uh, with the complexity that comes with that. Um, but man, I'm, I'm convinced that, um, that the proper training and proper support pre and post adoptive education is, um, is crucial. Uh, and, and like we can do better than that 25%. That's not a, you know, that's not a hard and fast statistic that we we can't vary. We can see that happen, and and I think um, we need to bring that that same kind of thinking into what we do in in working in you know family reconciliation and, and redemption. That uh, that as we're working in the lives of birth families, there there are certainly um, you know all manner of issues that we. Um, that that that, we're, that that the church needs to be involved in in order to see that work happen. But um, part of what we have to to remember is that because we're moving children that have been institutionalized at a point because there's abuse in their background um, or neglect in their background, perhaps in the home that we're trying to reunify them to, um, that, that we have to go the extra mile in in providing you know the the training and the equipping and the resourcing for them um, to make these. You know, trauma-informed homes to make these, um, you know, homes that are that are positioned for success, and and we, you know, we can't be satisfied um, with a twenty-five percent dissolution rate. We can't be satisfied with a with a point one percent, you know, dissolution rate. And I I appreciate the fact that you know that 
uh, Corby is believes that and is championing that and, you know, and, and, and sees that as a goal. Absolutely. You know, and, and I think that we, the, the more honest we are with each other and the more honest we are with ourselves to understand that, look, you know, there are some real things going on here that make it really difficult to do this work that we're, we're really led to do. Right. You know, cause to go into it thinking, oh, you know, we just have to get everyone uh, every kid into a family. Yeah, we agree. Like that's the ideal. That's what we want. But there's some real barriers legally, culturally, you know, you go to some tribes and, you know, there's, there's, I was talking to some people in, in Zimbabwe and they said, you know, the totem culture makes it really difficult. If you're not part of the same cult totem or tribe, you know, it could be a curse on that tribe to adopt a child outside from outside of that tribe, right? That's not something that you and I know. Right. That's not something that's that's yeah. but that's a real issue. Right. That's not something that you just overcome tomorrow. That's something that needs to be in training and teaching. And it's not saying you say, well, there's no way you can do anything in that. No, you say, what can we do to make that understood that, look, that's that's not truth. Right. But those are worldviews that are right. embedded those are institutions in these countries, as Andy Crouch once talked about with the, right. in, the, in his book, Playing God, which is a fantastic book. He talks about the fact it takes about three generations to create an institution. Otherwise, it's a cultural artifact. Yeah. And a cultural artifact, you know, that may come and go. But an institution takes about three generations also to break it from being an institution in that culture, right? So that's not, three generations is not three weeks, right? That's, that's decades. Yeah of working intentionally. And that's what we can start doing now in some of these places. And some of it will break down much, you know, we can break down those things much quicker because maybe they are just cultural artifacts, but we got to come in with humility. We got to come in with truth that is, you know, just, just showered in love, right? That, that can, we can come in and build trust, um, through other means. And then we can start talking about deinstitutionalization. Then we can start talking about some of these other things. I talk about that with a lot of people, you know, like some people well, come in at a, I, I think, like, man, some people come in at a, and we're trying to get them to yeah. Z tomorrow. Right. Rather than going right. to B. And that's something that I think is right. critical too. So go ahead. Sorry. Well, no, I was just going to say, and I think it's, it's incumbent upon us to realize that that's why we all, we always have to stay, you know, well connected yeah. to the gospel. Um, that, you know, that, that we're, we're trying to change things that are, that are deeply rooted in our culture and things that are, you know, that are, that are deeply rooted in our psyche. Um, and that at, at the end of the day, we need, we need supernatural mm-hmm. intervention and, and we need a spirit that, you know, that really believes that, um, that this work that we do, that's, that's wrapped in the gospel is for neither, you know, Jew nor Greek, neither male nor female. Like there's that, 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 that ultimately that many of these things that we have created or, or, or boundaries that we see that exist between each other are, um, are autumn, like they, they pale in comparison or they, or they fade into the background in, uh, to the, you know, surpassing excellency of Christ. And, and I think, you know, sometimes, so we, we can't, we also can't approach solving these problems by, you know, minimizing the gospel or, or, or divorcing ourselves from that reality. We can't put that on the shelf. We've got to yeah. put it front and center. The other thing that he talked about before we go into the recommendations, he talked about, uh, 
you know, he said at Kids Alive, you know, we are 100% faith-based and 100% science-based here. You know, talking about what often is a science faith divide, right? Rather that, rather saying, no, it's consistent. And he referenced uh, the body keeps the score and anatomy of the soul and uh, another book, The Child Who Was Raised as a Dog. I haven't read that one, but I know the other ones. Um, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, you know, from coming from a background where I, where I taught human development for years. And so kind of, you know, swam around, uh, in, in a lot of, a lot of developmental theorists and a lot of, you know, a lot of psychological theory. Um, you know, what I always used to tell my students is that, uh, that, that ultimately, um, science is nothing more than, um, the, the, uh, the organization and the interpretation of observed fact. So we, we observe reality and then we we make meaning out of out of out of what we see in the patterns and, and the things that come out. And 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 so how do you balance being 100 percent science and, and being, you know, 100 percent faith based or 100 percent Christian that, that you 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 filter those observations through through a Christian worldview? You filter that through the, the reality of who Jesus is and some things that you know to be true because, because ultimately God has pointed to them and said that they're true. He's told us that they're true in his word. And, and I think, so we don't have to live inconsistently with the observations of science, but we have to realize at times that, that many of, so even some of the theoretical bases that we tend to, we tend to, to, to look at as grounded fact, um, Th- those those interpretations, those theories are colored by the worldview of the theorist as well. And and so it, it's many times reinterpreting the data, reinterpreting the um, the, the conclusions in, in terms of in terms of what we know to be true um, in our own worldview. And that's that's where I think there's um, there's an ability to be 100 percent of both. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think we've had some people like uh, Caroline Leaf on the show, Kurt Thompson, as he, he referenced Anatomy of the Soul, that talk about, you know, yeah. the idea. Now, I will say that Kurt said before we interviewed, I think I may have said this during our interview, he goes, you know, because Caroline Leaf will often say science is finally catching up to the Bible. And he said, whoa, 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 science will never catch up to the Bible. The Bible is right. there are things we will never understand. And I was like, I'm so glad he said that because it's so true. Right. You know, and it's David talked about it. Right. Your thoughts are too lofty for mine. You know, there are things that we will just not understand. And there are gaps and there are things that we, we just won't because it's, it's beyond us. And that's on purpose, right? If we could understand everything, we would be God yeah. and we are not God, right? And so, right. and we will never be God. And so that's something that is, is critical to understand. So, um, yeah, you know, we could talk a lot more. That, that, we could go really philosophical and, and go super deep on that. <laughs> but we're going to stop now because I don't want to be found out. So let's just uh, not go there. Um, right. Right. Don't, don't expose, don't expose ignorance that doesn't have to be exposed. So, so, well, but Hey, let's talk about something that you, that like you do know, um, something you are confident in, um, like, 
Do you have a recommendation? I do have a recommendation. I, I already kind of gave a, a pseudo recommendation that, that I do recommend, which is Playing God by Andy Crouch. That was not planned. That just came out. So that was a bonus recommendation, folks. Um, just I've already recommended that, I think, on the show at some point. So that's a, a bonus bonus. So that's the second time. Um, the one book that I have finished recently, and I had kind of teased it a little bit a couple episodes ago, I believe, is The Coddling of the American Mind by Jonathan Haidt. I recommended his other book, The Rational Mind. And I've talked about it a few times on this show. Um, another fantastic book by Jonathan Haidt. Um, he wrote this book and it's, it's really is, you know, the title says it. It's talking about how we have been coddled um, and this idea of safetyism in our, in our culture. The idea of, you know, now we are so afraid to do a lot of things that we don't know how to uh, really communicate with each other very much because of the things we're depriving ourselves of. So a lot of the, you know, he talks about and ties together the idea of the fact that we aren't going and playing in the park with unsupervised play has really led to a lot of the, uh, you know, lack of being able to actually have civil dialogue and civil discourse. And, you know, you go, what the heck are you, how is that, what do those have to do with each other? Well, think about it. You know, this is very much simplified. You have to read the book, which is fantastic. I strongly recommend this, um, in our, in our current, uh, uh, environment in our world today. But the idea of unsupervised play at the park, you know, you learn a lot of life lessons. You learn, you know, how to manage time. You sure. learn how to get places on your own and you don't have someone to rely on. You learn um, when you have a fight, when you have a disagreement with your friend or somebody at the park, you have to deal with it yourself. You don't have mommy or daddy to go run to. You got to deal with it. You got to work it out and you got to then presumably keep playing with each other. Right. And so rather than taking your ball and going home, rather than taking your ball and just playing a different place, no, you're, you're, you're doing it there. And so it's a really, really good book. Um, you know, it talks about a lot of other things, uh, but it's, it's really the ideas are, you know, one of the other things I'll just say, and then there's two other you know, truisms, so to speak, or sayings that people have reversed in society. One is he talks about, and there's two others I won't talk about on the show, but the one is what doesn't kill you make her strong, makes you stronger. That idea, it's not necessarily always true, but it's probably more often true than not. It's been replaced in our society a lot of times that what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. So people are mm. avoiding things and avoiding trying things anymore because they're afraid that, you know, they might get hurt or they might have something happen to them or whatever it may be. So, folks, again, strongly recommend it. Um, this guy knows what he's talking about. And he's, he was a professor at University of Virginia um, before he started writing and speaking. But it's one of my favorite books. Uh, it'll probably, I'm guessing by the end of 2019, it will remain one of my favorite books of 2019. So... Uh, of the 14 books I've read so far, it is my favorite. So anyway, folks, there it is. Anything to add? No, man, I've colored in 14 Fantastic. books this year. Fantastic. That's 14 more than so. I've colored in. So, <laughs> you know, I've looked at coloring. I looked at some coloring stuff. So anyway, well, you know, I'm impressed. 14 books. That's a great, that's a great well, start you know, to the year. Listening man. helps a lot. So, you know, some people would say that's fake, but I don't, I don't think so. But, and a lot of minimum novels. So novels are a lot quicker, a lot quicker, but all right. So take everything you've learned today, folks. Take what, you know, Rick and I have said, what Corby was able to share with us, you know, hopefully you read some of these resources and you will take all of it and you will help uh, it to encourage you 
to love orphan and vulnerable children better and better each and every day. Thanks a lot. Have a great week. We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.